Well, it's likely that every set of parents here has wrestled with the question as you have a child about to be born, which is the case as almost always in our congregation, you wrestle with the question as a husband and wife, what should we name our child? What should we name our son or daughter? And haven't you seen that there are seasons when certain names become more popular than others? When I came to Downingtown to pastor in 1986, there were a number of the older ladies in their 70s and 80s who had names beginning with the letter E. There was Elva, Emma, Edna, Elsie, Edith, and Elma. I ended up doing most of their funerals. It seemed like at the, in the first couple decades of the 20th century, E names were popular. When our children were born, we found that names like Heather, Amanda, and Caitlin were coming into vogue. Uh, other names seem to stand better the test of time because they're drawn from biblical characters. And you, so you have throughout the centuries, the Sarahs and the Marys and the Elizabeths and the Rebeccas. Boys' names seem to have a greater constancy because maybe more of those are taken from the Bible historically. Matthew, David, John, Jonathan, Joshua, Nathaniel, Nathan, Paul, Andrew, and then sometimes we name our kids because of an ethnic association. If you're Irish, you have a Patrick. If you're Italian, like my father was Italian, you might have an Anthony. If you're um, Polish, maybe a Stanley. If you're German, uh, Fritz? I don't know. I forgot to ask Andre, what's a common German name? But, but sometimes our names are chosen based on ethnicity. Sometimes you avoid a name because of a certain association of somebody you knew by that name. But, friends, there's one name I can guarantee it you're not going to name your son. Because that name has been stigmatized by one who had that name and has become regarded as the epitome of treachery, betrayal, and evil. And that is Judas Iscariot the betrayer of the Lord Jesus. I don't think anybody, however many sons are born in this congregation, I don't think any of you are tempted to name your son Judas. Well, as we're studying the Gospel of Mark, I ask you to turn to Mark chapter 14, and we come to that place where Judas Iscariot makes a pledge to the Jewish leaders to turn in Jesus to them. Mark 14, our text is just two verses, verses 10 and 11. We read, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. We know from verses 1 and 2 that the Jewish leaders are plotting the death of Jesus. But they want to do it not in a public way, but they want to wait until the crowds leave town and so they could do it stealthily, they could do it secretly so that it would not create a riot. Now we see that their long-standing desire to kill Jesus is about to be gratified. They're about to be given the desire of their hearts. And when they hear this from Judas, you notice it says they were glad. They were finally getting what they wanted. But before we even get into the text, I, I want to apply something here. It's not always a good thing when God gives you the desire of your heart. Psalm 37.4 says, many of us memorize it, 
Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you are delighting yourself in the Lord, if you're meditating upon his word, if you're filling your mind with his will for your life, then what you desire will likely be in line with what God desires for you. And so when you receive it, it will come as a blessing. But when your heart does not delight in the Lord, when your heart is not aligned or lined up with his will as revealed in his word, you may be given the desire of your heart, but it will not come as a blessing, but as a curse. Psalm 107.15 reads like this, speaking of the Israelites, so he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. This refers to the time when God was feeding his people supernaturally with manna, but they were fed up with the manna. They were tired of the manna. They were complaining about the manna. We want some meat. And so God obliged them. God gave them meat in the form of three feet of quails on the ground. But then it says in Numbers 11.33, while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. You see, he gave them their desire, but not according to his pleasure, but according to his displeasure. Think also in, uh, in the time of Samuel, when the people wanted a king, they saw the nations had a king. And so they said, we want a king, even though God was their king. And so God warns them through Samuel that if you have a king, he's going to bring trouble to you. It's, it's going to be hardship but they were persistent. No, but there shall be a king over us. So God gave them a king. And what did it bring? Hardship and wickedness. You think of Saul and you think of the history of the kings of Israel and, uh, and Judah. God gave them what they wanted, but it, it proved to be not a blessing, but a curse. And here we see that the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the elders and the scribes, they're getting what they wanted. Ah, Judas has come to betray Jesus. And they were glad. They're finally getting what they wanted. They wanted to betray Jesus, but they wanted to do it in a stealthy and secretive way. And God is granting them their desire. But it was not a blessing. It was a curse. They're paying money to Judas. They're crying out, his blood be on us and our children would come back on their heads, not as a blessing, but as a curse. Part of that curse would be the horrific judgment that we talked about that would come upon them in 70 AD, not to mention the eternal damnation that would come upon any of those Jewish leaders who did not repent. And so the lesson here for us, and I just mentioned it in passing, you have to be careful what you desire. Make sure you desire what God desires for you. How does that happen? Delight yourself in the Lord. Make his will for you, your will for yourself. And then when you get the desire of your heart, it will come as a blessing and not a curse. But our interest this morning is in this betrayer of Jesus, Judas, the man who was the instrument to fulfill the wicked desires of the Jewish leaders. And from these verses, I want us to see three things. The privileges of the betrayer, the price of the betrayer, and the premeditation of the betrayer. First, the privileges of the betrayer. When we consider what makes the name Judas so despicable and why he is rightly viewed as the epitome of sin and degradation, no small part of it is the fact 
that what he did was committed against the backdrop of so many privileges. He had so much light. Notice our text says, and Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to betray him. He was one of the 12. In Mark 3, 14, Jesus prayed all night and he chose 12. Why? That they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Those were the priv- That was the privileged band of the 12. They came to be called apostles because the Greek word apostolos refers to those who are sent. He was privileged to be part of that inner circle of Jesus' disciples, the apostles. He could say with John the apostle, as John says in 1 John 1, what was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. Judas experienced Jesus with his five senses. He manifested God. He, he, he witnessed God manifested in human form. Not a passing glance. Some people got a passing glance of Jesus. He lived with him for three years. Imagine, first of all, being a witness to sinless perfection, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Now, many of us are fairly new to each other, right? We haven't been around for decades, and, and we're making new friends all the time. And when we meet each other, we have very idealistic notions of one another, at least we should, right? But then as we get to know one another, we find out we're all imperfectly sanctified sinners, right? With time, we come to see our warts and our blemishes. We're not perfect. We're sinners among sinners. The pastors are sinners. Hopefully, we meet the requirements of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. We are not hypocrites. But as you get to know me, you realize Pastor Chuck is not a perfect man. Pastor Chuck is a sinner. And if you want a shortcut, you can just talk to my wife although she wouldn't tell you. She would be too nice. But we're all sinners, and we get to see our warts and blemishes, right? Especially in marriage. You marry this person with stars in your eyes, and after time you realize, there's sometimes I just don't like that person. I love her, I love him, but there are times I don't like that person because we're all sinners. Hopefully we continue to love one another and bear with one another through all of that. But imagine being with a person like Jesus, under the most severe deprivations of life, hunger and thirst and the discomfort of having no place to lay his head, which was true of Jesus, sleeping sometimes on rainy hillsides, being under the stresses that he was under, constantly pursued by bitter enemies, verbally attacked by malicious, treacherous foes, continuously let down and disappointed by his dull-minded, unbelieving closest friends, besieged by the multitudes to the point of emotional and physical exhaustion, but never, never once hearing a whine or complaint, a grumble, never a curt word spoken by Jesus out of a peevish irritability, never once an unkind, harsh word, never once moody pouting, a withdrawal into aloof self-pity, never once an outburst of anger, never a trace of envy or jealousy. Now, I trust along the way I've described all of us, right, at one point or another. But none of those things describe Jesus. Judas lived with sinless perfection in Jesus for three years. Sinlessness indeed, 
in word, in attitude, and even in thought. Imagine, then, being a witness to the powerful, unctuous preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our world has known some powerful preaching. There has been preaching that has gripped thousands of people with the, the force of truth, held people still spellbound under the force of truth. We have Peter in the Bible preaching on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 are cut to the heart. What shall we do? The preaching of the Apostle Paul. Historically, we have the preaching of, of George Whitfield that talks about him, you know, preaching to the miners here in the States and their, their faces are, are filled with coal dust and, and the tears making little rivulets down their, their coal stained faces as they're moved by the preaching of George Whitfield. Men like Charles Spurgeon, under whose ministry thousands were converted. Jonathan Edwards, his one sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I read that he read it fairly monotone by candlelight. And yet people were so gripped with fear of falling into the hell he was describing that they were hanging white-knuckled onto the pews for fear of falling into hell. So there have been very powerful preachers in the history of the church. It wasn't done by human power. That was all the Holy Spirit. But imagine hearing him preach who had the Spirit without measure. No limitation to the Spirit of God in the Lord Jesus. Well, Judas saw, he heard that preaching and teaching for three years. Imagine being witness to the astounding miracles of Jesus. A raging storm with fierce winds, life-threatening billows of the sea coming over the bow of the boat reduced to a placid calm by the staccato command of Jesus. Hush, be still. And the lake is glassy smooth. A man dead so long that his relatives feared that if you opened the tomb, there would be a horrid stench. And by the word of Jesus, Lazarus, come forth. The man comes out of the tomb alive, a leper having festering sores and corrupt flesh, immediately turned into infant pure skin by Jesus' touch. The withered hand of a man in the synagogue restored at the, at the bidding of Jesus as soon as he stretches it out. A man blind from birth made to see, a crippled man made to leap up at the word of Jesus. The bread that somehow multiplied in their hands and though it was a few loaves and a few fish on one Occasion fed 4,000 on another 5,000 people. The demon-possessed man in Gadara, wretched, raving, self-destructive, a threat to himself, a threat to others, unable to be contained even by chains. And he's changed into a calm, self-possessed man. And he's found sitting clothed and in his right mind by the power of Jesus casting out those demons. Judas saw all those marvelous works. Imagine experiencing the great loving heart of Jesus, seeing him time and time again moved with compassion at the sight of the crowds. On one occasion, he sees these people, and they're oppressed by the Pharisaic legalists. They have no shepherds, and moved with compassion, he takes the time to teach them. Another occasion, he's, they're, they're gathering to hear him teach, and they've been there a long time, and they're hungry, and he perceives that and moves with compassion. He feeds them. The great patience, or rather, the time when um, he's on his way to Jerusalem, 
with an entourage following him. And there are two blind, beggar, marginalized nobodies crying from the gutter, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus Christ stops dead in his tracks, caring nothing about what anyone else thinks, and gives attention to those two blind beggars and restores their sight. His sensitivity to his own followers, you've been working hard, let us come apart and rest for a time. Imagine being exposed day after day to the supreme selflessness of Jesus. Late into the night, people are pressing upon him, and person after person, he's healing, he's casting out demons. Late into the night, robbing himself of sleep. The great patience that he exercises with his own dull-minded disciples, whom he has to tell again and again the same thing, and they still don't get it. Imagine being witness to the great piety of Jesus, his relationship to his father. Though weary from ministry the night before, Judas rolls over in his sleeping bag while it's still dark, and the sleeping bag of Jesus is empty. Where is Jesus? He's out doing what he customarily does, seeking his father's face in prayer. But you think not only of what Judas saw and heard, but imagine what he was privileged to do. On at least one occasion, Jesus sends out the 12 and he gives them authority over unclean spirits and to do miracles in his name. Judas was among those men who came back to Jesus marveling. Even the unclean spirits are subject to us. Judas was given power to cast out demons and do miracles in the name of Jesus. All of these were privileges given to Judas Iscariot. But despite all of this, Judas was willing to be party to the destruction of Jesus of Nazareth. Like the religious leaders, he wanted to rid the earth of Jesus. What makes his sin so heinous and so horrible One reason is because it was done against the backdrop of so many privileges, so much light. And brothers and sisters, Judas illustrates to us the fact that sins committed against light are the greatest sins. And let me read to you two passages in the Gospels where this is made clear. The severity of your sin is measured by the amount of light that you're sinning against. In Matthew eleven twenty and following, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Your judgment is going to be more severe because you received more light than they did. And then in, in Luke chapter 12, we have the same truth taught in different language, Luke 12, 47. And there we read, Jesus speaking, and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. If you've been given more light, more truth, more is expected of you than those who have been given less. 
And here I would say, if there's someone sitting here and you have not believed in Jesus Christ yet, I want to tell you, as I used to tell the people back in Downingtown, coming to church can be one of the most dangerous things you do. Now, it's also one of the best things you can do. Because the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If you're going to be forgiven and given eternal life, you must hear the gospel and you must believe it. So by all means, it's good to come to church because church is one of the places where you hear the good news about Jesus. And you need to hear it because you need to believe it to be saved. But let me tell you why coming to church can also be one of the most dangerous places. Because based on this principle, the more light you receive... And the more light you reject, the more severe will be your judgment. And so if you're not believing in Jesus, I'm not saying this to discourage you from coming to church. Please come to church. But I am saying it to call you to believe in Jesus. Because if you hear the word of God week after week, month after month, and you push it down, you suppress it, and you reject it, your judgment will be more severe than those in places where they never hear the gospel. So come to church, but please believe the message. And then I say in that regard to you children, you children being raised in a Christian home, do you realize how privileged you are among so many people on the earth? We, were, we prayed this morning for Papua New Guinea. We were going to connect with Caleb and, and Melissa. They're going to a jungle where people have never heard the gospel. There are places on the face of the earth where people have not heard the gospel. And according to the Bible, you cannot be saved apart from belief in Jesus. But you've been privileged to be born in a nation that is saturated with the gospel. But even though that's the case, we have to say most Americans are not biblical Christians. The road is narrow that leads to life. But not only have you been born into a country where the gospel is saturated and has been for centuries, you've been privileged to be born into a Christian family where you have at least one and maybe two parents who are Christians. And not only that, I know your parents are not perfect. You know that. But as their pastor, I can tell you, I don't think there's a parent here who is a hypocrite. And you have not only been raised in a Christian home, but you have been raised in a home where your parents, though not perfect, as none of us is, they are sincere and real Christians. Children, why do I say that? Because... You're going to be responsible for all of those privileges that you received. And I say that to encourage you, believe truly in Jesus. Believe early in Jesus. Take advantage of the privileges that you have been given. They are very rare. But then I say, brothers and sisters, to all of us, we are called to be good stewards of the privileges that we have been granted we have more, some of us have more Bibles in our homes than whole cities in the world have Bibles. We have the freedom, at least still, to possess our Bible, to read our Bible, to hear the word of God, to come to church. I put it this way. We have been exposed in our reformed culture to the richest veins of Christian heritage that run through the mountains of Christian history, we have been allowed to drink deeply of some of the best writings from some of the most godly people in history. 
We have been given in our particular stream of Christianity, I dare say, we have been given spiritual gold. We have been given spiritual prime rib to feed our souls on. Well, to whom much is given of them, much is required. And I'm just saying that let's be good stewards of all the rich blessings God has given us as his people and to live in accord with all the light, all the truth that we have been privileged to imbibe. So we have that first point, the privileges of the betrayer, but now the price of the betrayer, reading again our short text, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began to seeking out how to betray him at an opportune time. Again, we ask, why was the sin of Judas so heinous that none of you are going to name your sons Judas? Another reason is because of the extreme perversion of values that he represents. His actions display perhaps the most crass instance possible of putting the material over the spiritual. What motivated Judas to betray and deliver Jesus? What was the price for bringing Jesus into their hands? Well, the text says they promised to give him money. And with that promise, he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. You give me money, I give you Jesus, that's a good deal. Judas saw that as a good deal. I give you Jesus and you give me money. Matthew's parallel actually indicates that Judas took the initiative. According to Matthew 26, 14, Judas says, what are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. And Judas thought, that's a good price. 30 pieces of silver, it's about 60 denarii, a little over two months wages. That's a good deal. I give you Jesus and you give me a couple months pay. That's a good deal. Now, friends, it is possible and even likely that love of money was not the only foul motive that actuated Judas to betray Jesus. A.B. Bruce, in a, his book, The Training of the Twelve, I have a, an ancient copy here. He had some interesting insights, and I'm going to read them to you as to why Judas might have betrayed Jesus. He says, whence then that mighty volcanic upheaving in the breast of Judas? Surely other passions were at work in his soul when he sold his Lord than the cold and hardening love of gain. Pressed by this difficulty, some have suggested that in betraying Jesus, Judas was actuated principally by feelings of jealousy or spite, arising out of internal dissensions or imagined injuries. This suggestion is in itself not improbable. Offenses might very easily come from various sources. The mere fact that Judas was not a Galilean, but a native of another province, might give rise to misunderstanding. Human sympathies and antipathies depend on very little things. Kinsmanship, a common name, or a common birthplace have far more power than the grand bonds which connect us with all the race. And then he says, then who knows what offenses sprang from those disputes among the disciples who should be the greatest in the kingdom? What if the man of Kerioth, that would be Judas, had been made to feel that whoever was to be the greatest, he at least had no chance, not being a Galilean. The mean, 
narrow habits of Judas as treasurer would be a, a third cause of bad feeling in the apostolic community. These reflections show how ill feeling might have arisen between Judas and his fellow disciples. But what we have to account for is the hatred of the false disciple against his master. Had Jesus done then done anything to offend the man by whom he was betrayed? Yes, he had seen through him, and that was offense enough. For, of course, Judas knew that he was seen through. Men cannot live together in close fellowship long without coming to know with what feelings they are regarded by each other. If I distrust the brother, he will find it out, even should I attempt to conceal it. But the guileless and faithful one would make no attempt at concealment. He would not, indeed, offensively obtrude his distrust on the notice of Judas, but neither would he studiously hide it to make matters go smoothly between them. He who so faithfully corrected the faults of the other disciples would do his duty to this one also and make him aware that he regarded his spirit and evil habits with disapprobation at his disapproval in order to bring him to repentance. And what the effect of such dealing would be, it is not difficult to imagine. On a Peter, correction had a most wholesome influence. It brought him at once to a right mind. In the case of a Judas, the result would be very different. The mere consciousness that Jesus did not think well of him, and still more, the shame of an open rebuke, would breed sullen resentment and ever-deepening alienation of heart, till at length love was turned to hatred, and the impenitent disciple began to cherish vindictive passions. And that's a long quote, but it's kind of insightful, isn't it? There may have been more at work in Judas's heart that caused him to betray the Lord of glory. But what we have in the text, we know, was the fact that Judas was covetous. He was a lover of money. And he's probably the best illustration of 1 Timothy 6.10, which says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. A worse evil cannot be imagined, at least part of it being Judas's covetousness and love of money. Jesus, Judas... For three years, he looked at Jesus and all that Jesus represented. What did Jesus represent? Truth, peace with God, fellowship with God, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life. He looked at all the things that Jesus represented. And then he looked at money and all that it represented, all that it could buy. Food to delight the palate, a comfortable home, ease to the body, position, power, he looked at Jesus, he looked at the silver, and he chose the money. You know, in the Bible, the love of money is given as one of the chief enemies of our love for God. Remember how Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you cannot love God and mammon. Either you'll love the one and hate the other. One is, is going to push the other off the bench. You cannot love God and mammon or wealth at the same time. In Luke 12, we have that man who was rich with a bumper crop, tore down his barns, built bigger barns. And he's called a fool because he was rich in this world, but he was not rich toward God. Jesus himself said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Now, you know that God doesn't despise, we're not ascetics, we're not Amish, despising some of the earthly material blessings that God gives us, right? We shouldn't. 
Paul says, against asceticism in 1 Timothy 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be re rejected if it is received with gratitude. We're thankful for our homes. We're thankful for comforts. We're thankful for good food. We're thankful we receive these gifts from God with thankful hearts. We don't despise them. But the point is that we need to value the spiritual and the eternal over the material and the temporal. And let me just rattle off some Proverbs. One of the themes in the book of Proverbs underscores this fact, to focus on what really matters. And it uses the word better. Listen to these Proverbs, Proverbs 15, 16. Well, let me start with 314. I don't think that's in your notes. Speaking of wisdom, for her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain than fine gold. 1516, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. 1517, better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox with hatred. 16.8, better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. 16.16, how much better is it to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding? And understanding is to be chosen above silver. 17.1, better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting and strife. 19.1, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. 19.22, what is desirable in a man is his kindness, and it is better to be a poor man than a liar. 22.1, a good name is more to be desired than wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. Clearly, there are some things we should not let go of. We should value for all the money in the world. What are they? The fear of the Lord, love, righteousness, a peaceful home, integrity, truthfulness, a good name. But above all, what good is it if you have all this wealth, all the, the comforts that money can buy, and you sacrifice your never-dying soul? Judas stands in history as perhaps the best example of the insanity of putting the material and temporal over the eternal. Contrary to what Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Contrary to Moses, of whom it is said in Hebrews 11, considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the, the treasures of Egypt, I'd rather suffer with the true people of God than to enjoy all the comforts of Pharaoh's palace. And contrary to Paul, who said in 2 Corinthians 4, that we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen, because the things which are seen are temporal, the things that are not seen are eternal. And so let's take this to our hearts and apply it. Where do you stand regarding values? Again, if you are not a believer in Jesus, there's a reason why you haven't yet entrusted yourself wholly to Jesus Christ. It means like Judas, there must be something that you are valuing more than you value Jesus. I don't know if I'm talking to an unbeliever here, but if I am, there's something that you're putting ahead of Jesus. You're looking at Jesus, and you're looking at that thing, and you're saying, I'll take that thing rather than Jesus. Judas had Jesus and 30 pieces of silver. He said, I'll take the silver over Jesus. What are you taking over Jesus? Is it your friends? I don't want to lose friends, and following Christ may cause you to lose friends. But I can tell you what, you'll get the best friend, Jesus, and you'll get the best friends. 
With all of our warts and blemishes, Christians are the best friends in the world. With all you've been through, and some of us get beaten up in churches, people get beaten up in churches, pastors get beaten up in churches, we're not perfect, but still, hands down, Christians are the best friends in the world, and you better stick with them. So you'll lose friends, maybe, but you'll get the best friends, God's people, they'll be eternal friends. Is it money and pleasure that you're trading in for, trading Jesus in for? It promises a lot, but it will never give you what you really need. It was Augustine who said you were made for God and your soul will be restless until you rest in God. Nothing will satisfy the deep longings of your soul, nothing material, nothing physical, except Jesus. Is it you want your freedom? I just want to be able to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, and if I become a Christian, then I'll be strapped by the Bible and the will of God. Well, God may give you your way, but you will forever be separated from him. And there's a place to which you go if you continue to separate yourself from God, and that's hell. Do you think hell, and this is something, believers, we can, we can talk to unbelievers about. Do you think hell is a fun place? Do you know who fills hell? Self-centered, self-serving, self-promoting, selfish people. People like Judas. And you can ask someone, as I would ask you if you're an unbeliever, do you like now being with self-centered, self-promoting, selfish people? Is that fun to be with people like that? I don't think so. Hell is filled with Judases who are all about themselves. If you want your own way, God may give it to you, but it will mean separation from him. But then we as believers also need to check our values. Even as believers, sometimes other things, idols, can begin to wrap their tentacles around our hearts, and we mustn't let that happen. Material things, I'm not aware that anyone here is a materialist. I would have told you so if I thought by now. I'm not aware of that, but I don't know your hearts. Are material things wrapping themselves around your heart? It's not wrong to possess things, not wrong to enjoy things, not even wrong to be rich if God gives the riches. The problem is when those things possess you, that's when it becomes a problem. How about work? Work is a good thing. It's a necessary thing, but sometimes we can become workaholics and our identity can be wrapped up in our, in our work. That's who we are. Work becomes an idol. It becomes something we're valuing over other things. That can be true of a pastor. I can find my identity more in my ministry and what I do rather than who I am as a child of God. That can be a real danger. I remember my son, in his first year as a professional soccer player, he wrestled with that. It was something that led him out of that. He was finding his identity in his sport. And he realized, no, I need to find my identity in Jesus Christ. A lot of these things we're not going to be able to do very long. And so work can become an idol. Popularity with people. Some of the saddest words in the Bible are Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. The people who do their religion to impress other people. They pray to impress other people and they fast to do, impress other people. They give their alms to do other people. Jesus says they have their reward in full. You want it? You want the praise of people? You may have it, but that's all you get. Nothing from God, nothing from eternity. How vain, how empty is that? Let's listen to Jesus and value our souls above gaining the whole world. Let's be like Moses, willing to suffer with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin in Pharaoh's palace 
Let's follow Paul and look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. One more point, much more brief. The premeditation of the betrayer. What makes the sin of Judas so heinous and so despicable? So you never want to name your son Judas. Well, surely because what he did, he did against the backdrop of so much privilege. Certainly because his betrayal represented a gross perversion of values. Jesus versus 30 pieces of silver, I'll take the silver. But one reason further why Judas's sin was so heinous, it was premeditated. You know, Scripture makes a, a distinction between unintentional sins and those which are defiant or high-handed. I read just a few verses from the book of Numbers. In the law of God, Numbers 15, 29, we read, You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people." The Old Testament law made a distinction between unintentional sins and deliberate, defiant sins. And so does our society, right? We have different levels of murder. There's manslaughter. There is uh, a murder that is a momentary act of passion. But what is murder one? First degree murder. It's premeditated murder. That is the worst. Sins have a gradation. Some are worse than others. What about Judas? Was his betrayal of Jesus the impulse of a moment? A sudden temptation that came upon him? Not at all. His betrayal was the result of months and even years of progressively hardening his heart against the truth and against Jesus, who is the truth. Perhaps at the beginning, he found himself startled when he had a negative thought about Jesus, when he had some resentment toward Jesus. Perhaps at the beginning he was startled by that, and he felt some guilt and maybe some shame. But with each rising he felt of guilt, he didn't deal with it rightly. He didn't humble himself. He didn't own it. He didn't repent of it. He didn't confess it. And with each rising in his heart of covetousness, love of money, resentment, bitterness toward Jesus, he didn't fight against it. He didn't allow it to alarm him. He didn't cry out to God against it. He didn't forsake it. And what happened? There was a progressive hardening of his heart. The love of money increasingly got a grip upon his heart, and his resentment and bitterness toward Jesus grew in his heart, unresisted. And progressively, the truth that Jesus spoke and the truth that Jesus was and is that is calculated to bring us to repentance, became buried more deeply and deeply in his heart. And the voice of his conscience that at first may have screamed became dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer until it was heard not at all. And he got to the point where he was consumed by the love of money and consumed by such hatred of Jesus that he turned him in. What, Jesus, what Judas did was not on impulse. It was not a sudden flare-up of temptation. It was a thought-through, settled resolve to deliver Jesus up. He had plenty of time to think about it. He had plenty of time and opportunity to change his mind. And so the text shows the initiative of Judas. 
I can read it just one more time. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. This was not the tentativeness going against a screaming conscience. There was in Judas a calm, the calm resolve of a hardened sinner. And so as we close, let's take a final warning from this. Serious sin doesn't just overtake us. It grows progressively in our hearts. Our hearts become progressively hardened to sin when we don't deal rightly with it. That's why Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another daily, lest any be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so I call you, brother and sister, as I call myself, to keep short accounts with our sin. When we're aware that we have sinned, whether in deed or word or even in our thoughts, let's repent quickly. Let's confess quickly. Let's quickly ask for grace, not only to be forgiven, but to not do that again. Let's be like Paul who says in Acts 24, 16, I take pains always to maintain a good conscience toward God and toward all men. If we sin once, we repeat it, it becomes easier and easier. It's like threads. I can take the strongest man here, wrap a couple threads around his wrist, and he'll snap them. But you wrap enough threads around, and the strongest man here will not be able to break the bonds of those threads. And that's the way sin is. You don't fall into addictions overnight. You repeat it. You don't deal with it rightly. Your heart gets hardened, and you become more and more entrenched in that. Let's not do that, brothers and sisters. And then exhort one another daily. Not only do we need to guard our own hearts, we need to look out for one another. We're, we're helping one another get to heaven, right? And if you see anything in your brother or sister that bespeaks some hardening of heart, let's be faithful to love one another enough to encourage, to exhort them. Brother, sister, I see that you're not dealing with this rightly. I care about you. You, you need to confess this. You need to repent of this. I, I'm here to help you. But let's not only exhort ourselves, but let's exhort one another daily, lest any be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And again, if you are here and you are not a believer, please do not reject the gospel one more time. There is this danger. Proverbs 29.1, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will be suddenly broken beyond remedy. May this be the day that you say yes to Jesus. I need you as my Savior. I want you as my Lord. I've rejected you so many weeks, so many months, so many years. I will do it no longer. Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, the sinner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for as hard an example as he is. We thank you that Judas is a negative example to us of what not to do and what not to be. And we pray for the unbelievers here that they would not continue to reject the gospel and heap condemnation upon themselves, but this very day they might believe. Help us as your people to guard our hearts, watch over it diligently, for out of it flow the issues of life. Give us grace in Jesus' name.